0: Welcome to another episode of Axel Blugger US Gamers official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Cat Bailey. Joining me as always is my lovely co-host Nadia Oxford.
1: Hello, Cat. We we picked a good time to record because I think there's a house on fire down the street, so of course there's sirens going off everywhere.
0: Sounds lovely. I mean, our podcast is like a house on fire anyway, so there's not really much choice. <laughs> change, I got to say.
1: Yeah, they're actually maybe the sirens are for
0: us. They're just getting ready. <laughs> Put it out! The Blood God is angry with this RPG podcast recording. Uh, we're recording a little bit earlier than usual because I don't know. I'm doing a lot of traveling this week, Nadia. I'm thinking hard about buying Dragon's Dogma. Actually,
1: that's actually uh, not a bad idea if you're traveling. Um, I Dragon's Dogma is definitely on my like to buy list because it just seems like something I'd really like. Uh, I didn't get to play it the first time around, so I wouldn't mind giving it a try.
0: Yeah, I did play it the first time around, but it's been a long time at this point. Uh I played it way back in 2012 when it first came out on Xbox 360 and PS3. And as I've said a time or two on this podcast, I remember everybody making fun of it and then being genuinely surprised and pleased at how good it actually was. And I'm looking forward to trying it out on the Nintendo Switch. Uh, By all accounts, it is an excellent port.
1: That's always good to hear. Uh, I think Mike actually phrased it to the star, saying it was a really good port and like, proof that we need more of those kind of rarer ports on the Switch like from the last generation, uh, especially for people like myself who missed out the first time around.
0: Is there a particular game that you could think of from last generation that you wish that you could see on the Nintendo Switch? Oh, there's a whole bunch. Uh, of
1: course, there's a whole bunch for the Wii U that I wanted to see. Um xenoblade chronicles x uh that game's anniversary just went by apparently and uh but that's people are going to be gonna upset happen. but i
0: have i have literally no interest in seeing that uh, ported over to the switch i don't think it's a very good game
1: well it was it's it's not going to happen anyway uh you probably remember i did the uh, interview with the xenoblade chronicles uh, team uh last year and they said it just uh, it's a lot of time a lot of money and uh monolith soft frankly it, You're right. I I think they have better things to do right now. Uh, I think at least part of their team is working on uh, Zelda, the new Zelda.
0: I can think of two games that I would like to see ported from last generation onto the Nintendo Mm -hmm. Switch. One of them is Lost Odyssey, which is a game from the Xbox 360 developed by Mistwalker, so here no Sakaguchi, which is basically a Final Fantasy IV classical 16-bit RPG from that generation to the point where like some of the characters are kind of recognizable as being in that archetype.
1: Yeah, um, you're absolutely right. I would actually like to see very much, see. I uh, see a part of that.
0: Yeah, I think it's one of the kind of, I, w- I wouldn't exactly call it a lost treasure or a lost gem, but it's significant enough that, and I don't think enough people played it because of the system that it came out on. Plus there was a lot of disdain, Uh, completely uh, a sad amount of disdain, frankly, uh, for 16-bit RPGs at that time and Japanese games in general. Yeah, there really was. It was kind of a
1: a dark period. That whole generation was a little bit dark for Japanese games. It was dark in general, also gray and very bland. (laughs) And brown. Yes. (laughs) Very brown. Uh, It's funny though, Dragon's
0: Dogma is an exception to that, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it's that uh, was when the time, around the time that the Japanese games industry started to pull out of the tailspin a little bit. And yeah. Capcom got off to a really good start that generation and then dipped down and then dipped back up a bit. Uh, I remember, as I was already saying, everybody was making fun of Dragon's Dogma and had literally no expectations for it. So that's why it came. And of course, Japanese games were a little bit at their near deer Dark Souls definitely helped things out a lot around that time. But Dragon's Dogma ended up being a nice surprise. Uh, the other one was the Persona slash Fire Emblem spinoff for the Wii U. Oh, yes. That, I think only Mike
1: played that and he was like, had no expectations for it, as I recall. And then he comes to us and says, guys, this game is really good. And that's what every single person I know who has played the game has said. It is a really good game, severely overlooked, and it is just prime uh,
0: Switch material. And Nintendo's going, do, 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 just, it's not happening. It was called Sharp F.E. Or that's the only name I can remember right now. What was it called in America? It was called uh, Sharp F.E. Like,
1: uh, I think the word idol might have been in there, too. Tokyo Mirage remember. Sessions. That's <laughs> the one. Tokyo Mirage Sessions. That's the one, yes. Uh, yeah, uh, that's another one. I, that was going to be my second pick. I, you know what? I really want to play that game, especially now that I know so much more about Persona and Shin Megami Tensei. I'd play that
0: in five seconds. You know, we're doing a starting kicking off a new segment this week, Nadia. We're going to be talking about the individual legacies for every single console pretty much. Uh, We're starting with the earliest ones, Coleco and Intellivision and Atari 2600. Not a lot of RPG legacy, but we'll be talking about them. And thinking about the Wii U, I see Wii U Defenders still popping up from time to time. People insisting that the Wii U could have been saved. And sadly, the Wii U, while it had a few good games on it, it it's kind of a black hole for games like Sharp FE. It just felt like they were doomed to die because the install base on that game was so low.
1: It really was. And uh, that's actually something that's been going around lately. The the question, uh, did Nintendo abandon Wii U owners? And here's the thing. As as a Wii U early adopter, like from day one, I, I bear no ill will whatsoever for Nintendo to just kind of ditch that and start over again and do it right with the switch. Um it was just
0: an awkward the, the Wii U was really kind of an, almost an awkward prototype to the switch. If anything Nintendo held on way too long because yeah, it kept yeah. giving it pretty solid first-person party support all the way until at least 2016. And that's just yeah. too long. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and that was actually, uh, Nintendo came up with some really good stuff that was, you know, they're backed in a corner and they gave us Splatoon, for example. That was uh, just a really good, interesting idea that did actually take advantage of the, the double screen. So uh, yeah, we had, some, we had some good stuff out of that generation, but God knows I'm happy to see most of it on the Switch and I would like to see more of it on the Switch, please.
0: Yeah, the Switch has almost entirely co-opted the legacy of the Wii U to an even greater extent than the Nintendo Wii co-opted the legacy of the Nintendo GameCube. Because the GameCube still had a lot of remarkably great games on there. The Wii U was kind of flat from the very start. I mean, it's telling that one of its absolute best games was a port of Wind Waker, an an updated port, no question about it. (laughs) But yeah, it it was grim for that for that system. And I don't I don't want to keep piling on uh, the Wii U, but I'm just reminded of like how many games I want to get off that thing and onto a console that people (laughs) actually play. Please say you make it sound like a charity for like lost puppies. Please save the the Wii U game. I mean, that's what it is, right? Every time it's like, oh, thank God they got Bayonetta 2 off this thing. Oh, thank God they got Super Mario Brothers U off this thing. Great. I can play it. People, People will play it now. Yes,
1: because I frankly have not... like I usually go back to old consoles once in a while. I have not gone back to my Wii U ever since I got my Switch. There's just no reason to whatsoever. Sadly,
0: I don't think Tokyo Mirage Sessions will ever get ported to the Switch. because I, I haven't checked the sales numbers, but I can't imagine they're very high. And as a very weird spinoff that was done in conjunction with Nintendo, it seems like there are probably going to be special considerations. So unless Nintendo actually funds this thing to come over, which I can't really imagine why they would do that. Yeah. Uh, I don't even think it did that well in Japan, which was
1: like, you know, the, the total territory for SMT and
0: Fire Emblem. It's Rainbow. so specialized uh, as a game. It's a very specific taste. Uh, but who knows? I mean, so much is coming out on the Nintendo Switch these days uh, that we never know. But I would love a remastered version of Lost Odyssey. I mean, for God's sake, they're doing a lost a remastered version of Thirteen a game that nobody freaking asked for. <laughs> you can at least do lost odyssey. Just I agree. Branded yes. as the lost classic by uh, final fantasy creator, Hironobu Sakaguchi. And yeah,
1: yeah they're done, done sold. Uh, actually, Sakaguchi has a, a Mistwalker. Walker, I believe has a, a mobile game that I've been a little bit curious about something about after Eden or beyond Eden, something like that, but it's a mobile game. So, uh, a mobile RPG which I have expressed reservations about before on the show and um I'm probably never going to play it but there is a character who is just pretty
0: much Frog from <laughs> Chrono Trigger. They didn't even they didn't even just Sakaguchi it. working on a console game as well. I seem to recall that he's explicitly said that he was doing something in conjunction with CyberConnect2. I think so. Um he, he's probably got a few irons in the fire by now. Yeah. Uh I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of games were that were planned for the 3DS Uh, just straight up got cancelled I've heard of at least a couple games that were slated to come out this year for the Nintendo 3DS that would have been of interest to RPG fans um, but Mm -hmm. were ultimately cancelled which is a super bummer that is a bit of a bummer like is it possible it might come out remastered for the switch whatever these games are i mean we would have to guess but i imagine that anybody who wanted to do that would have to submit a big plan explaining why exactly it would be worth putting this thing out on the nintendo switch a game that is already flooded with software so i already mentioned that we're going to be going through the initial legacy of the Atari Twenty Six Hundred, ColecoVision, and television, and talking about the early days of RPGs in general as part of of the kickoff for our news segment. I also talk a little bit about RPG news this week. We're recording extremely early. <laughs> We're recording on a Monday, so we don't have as much RPG news uh, to go over as usual. So this episode will be a week over, by the week old by the time you listen to it. But I, I apologize for that. But In the name of the Blood God, I need to get this episode out every single week, so I'm going to make it happen. But if you enjoy the podcast, I recommend that you subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. We're also on Spotify. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and subscribe to our newsletter, which comes out every Wednesday, gets you all of the RPG headlines, and includes some thought from one of the two of us, usually Nadia, because Nadia is the better writer out of all the two of us.
1: Ah, uh, shocks. I wouldn't say that.
0: Okay, so uh, the main piece of news that I'm seeing for RPG-related here on Monday, and this one, probably not surprising, Nadia, but I thought I would bring it up really quickly. Uh, mm-hmm. Pokemon Sword and Shield is explicitly being developed with an emphasis on portability. Uh, any thoughts yes. on that?
1: I think uh, reading the story is more or less what you predicted for this new generation of Pokemon being that... Uh, yes, of course, they want new fans who came in with the Let's Go Eevee and Let's Go Pikachu to, to get into this series with this game, of course, but they also want to let established fans know, hey, this is the Pokemon you probably remember best. This is more about portability and less about playing it with a friend on your TV screen. And I think maybe we got a hint of that when we both noticed in the trailer for Sword and Shield, uh, they got rid of uh, basically encounters that you could see on the overhead map. And we were both a little bit disappointed
0: about that, but it's not too surprising. Well, if I recall correctly, Pokemon Let's Go has a strong emphasis on motion controls and that sort of thing. Yes. Yes,
1: and that's going to be gone as far as I can tell.
0: Because it's supposed to be baby's first Pokemon, right? Say, a a cute game that you play with your three-year-old daughter, which is exactly what one of my good friends ended up doing. And they had a blast, I might add. Yeah, of course. (laughs) It was their first introduction to Pokemon. Uh, She absolutely loved it. She's a maniac for Pokemon now. (laughs) <laughs> the trap has been set. The trap has been set. She's gonna watch the cartoons and all that jazz. She's gonna get sucked into the Pokemon merchandising machine. Moichendizing. Moichendizing. But poke vortex This one is very much seemingly for the hardcore fans, and that means taking your Nintendo Switch to events and being able to trade and be able to play online and all of that stuff. I've I think I've said yeah. before that Pokemon doesn't need to be an MMORPG, because a Pokemon MMORPGs as a concept, is decidedly old-fashioned these days. Sorry, MMORPG fans. I know some of you... You had a good run. Yeah. I, I know that P- you guys are still playing... Plenty of people are still playing Final Fantasy 14, for example. Oh, yeah. But I think the days of big-budget, large-scale Final uh, MMORPGs are very steadily coming to an end. It's... You have a few pillars remaining. World of Warcraft, Final Fantasy 14, maybe a couple others, but... The days I think when we're
1: beyond the, yeah, we're beyond the point where uh, everyone was trying to ape that formula that World of Warcraft had, uh, because every big uh, developer at a time
0: seemed to be wanting to do their own take on MMORPGs. And I say thank God, because screw MMORPGs; they're the worst genre of RPG or the worst flavor of RPG, in my opinion. I still want to play Final Fantasy XIV very badly, but uh, Pokemon. Is all The po- the genius of Pokemon is that it was a quote-unquote games as game-as-a-service before games-as-a-service were even a thing because mm-hmm. it lets you carry over all of your progress and all of your Pokemon and all of that jazz to each subsequent generation. So everybody has a kind of... Uh, people who have been playing for a long time have a certain amount of investment in the series. Yes. They have their collections, they have a lot of memories that go go into the creation of their Pokemon. Each subsequent entry is an entry point into that expanded universe of Pokemon. So you go through the extended right. tutorial. Now you're in the universe, in the community, and everything. It's why the Pokemon community is one of the absolute strongest in all of gaming. So it totally makes sense that they're just going back to where they were uh, before.
1: Yeah, and uh, I foresee that, uh, and probably you foresee as well, that uh, this this rumored switch that's smaller and lighter and more portable is probably going to come out around the same time and sell 50 billion copies
0: and units. Uh, yeah, and I think that that's one of the reasons that they said we're putting more emphasis on portability, because the switch light yes. is built around portability. <laughs> Yes, which is like a a
1: really really smart move putting that out at the same time as Pokemon uh, Sword and Shield. That's uh, instant seller. The end.
0: Pokemon and Animal Crossing and Fire Emblem and Mario Maker Two. Yes, which are all uh, except for maybe Mario Maker Two, but yeah, those are all
1: very good games that are very compatible with uh, portability.
0: Will you get a Switch Lite when it comes
1: out? I undecided. Um, I'm really I really don't know what I'm going to do with the Switch because. Of course, I love my Switch, but the Joy-Con issue is, is a little bit out of control. Where I have the drift, and I can't really fix it. Uh, I can temporarily fix it, but not no permanent fix yet. So I'm definitely overdue for a new Switch. But I'm I'm just kind of waiting to see what you know what Nintendo is going to show us because um, they're, I'm hearing okay we're going to get a totally new uh, model of the Switch that's more powerful, and I'm also hearing oh we're going to get a basically the same model of the Switch just more powerful. Uh, and, of course, I'm hearing Switch Portables, which I might – you know what? That's actually a very appealing option as well because I play almost exclusively handheld.
0: There's no way that I'll buy a smaller system with a smaller screen. I like – if anything, I want to go bigger. Bigger. That's understandable, especially since um, I
1: don't travel a whole I, – I I do travel quite a bit for work, but not like, you know, tons and tons and tons. I'm not like my, not like my brother who travels like one week out of every month. Uh, in which case I would want to take my Switch everywhere. Uh, And and, and in that case, yes, I would get like a more portable Switch that I'm a little less paranoid about losing. But um, I can see where you're coming from because,
0: yes, I kind of like the size of the Switch's screen right now. Yeah, I'm sure that we'll cover this at some point in the future. Uh, In the short term, uh, one thing that I find pretty interesting, and I'm sure Nintendo is maybe aware of this, is... A lot of the hardcore Pokemon uh, people that I know are really annoyed by Pokemon Let's Go because they got oh, yeah. basically no traffic from it. Basically, no uh, like no one's playing like playing it the the post game. It doesn't have it didn't have any legs, and it had a almost entirely different audience than the traditional Pokemon audience, which I'm sure has Nintendo going woohoo! Right? I mean, it did sell like 10 million copies. But those people did not stick around. They did not stick around and keep playing Pokemon Let's Go. They finished the game
1: and then they were out. No, that's right. Because I actually tried to write a piece about the post game for Pokemon Let's Go, and everyone was like, "Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not no, really." Everybody was like, "The post game sucks. <laughs> we're not playing the post game. What do you want from us?" It's like, oh. well, they're very nice about it, but, but like, uh, yeah, you know, it's very much a game. Like, I, I loved it. I really had a good time with it. But it is very much the it's kind very of game. Cute. It is very, very cute, but." You know, you try, char- you, you, I basically beat the Arcanine Master and like I get, I got my title. And that was, that was
0: all for the post game for me. That was all I needed to do. <laughs> Just got to beat the Arcanine Master. Who and cares? It's, yeah. It's all about you and the Arcanine. Pretty much. The big fluffy puppy. He's very cute. Big fluffy I can't wait to see puppy. him in the movie. Before we move on to our main segment, Nadia, I hear that you've started playing Trails of Cold Steel. Yes, I have. I haven't gotten too, too far. Uh, but I have
1: started playing. And, uh, yeah, it's a very, uh, have you played it at all?
0: new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. I can't remember. I have
1: played it, yes. Yeah, it's very, very much a Falcom RPG in that I can, (laughs) you have that, like the same kind of character models. Uh, You have like the same kind of music and none of this is an insult at all because as we have established in the past, Falcom knows their rpgs they're good solid games they're like not gonna blow the top off your head or anything like that but you're gonna really enjoy yourself you're gonna like the characters you're gonna like the music you're gonna like the graphics uh so far i I actually really like the battle system for this game which is kind of a uh, it's like a it is a a menu-based rpg but it has a big emphasis on area of effect attacks so where you are in position to where your your enemies are, it does matter quite a bit, and you can actually move around and um, and adjust your uh your strategy that way. But yeah, from what little I've played so far, yes, I I like it quite a bit, and I actually didn't really realize how like just how old uh the trail like you know Legends of Hero Trail series is. Like it goes back to like God the PC Engine, or even further back,
0: like the a lot uh, further, like all the way back to the original PC. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and uh, you know what? you got to hand it to Falcon. They've been at it for a very, very long time. They know what they're doing. Yeah,
0: they sure do. They have such deep roots uh, in the RPG space that we could probably do an entire podcast just around them. Of course, that's like more Retronauts territory, but they do have an extremely rich RPG legacy for sure. As for Trails of, of Cold Steel, you know, there's a little bit of reputation, repetition going on in there. I don't know if you've managed to get to... Ah, uh, the one dungeon, like one of the first dungeons, you have to do multiple times. If I recall correctly, I haven't done that yet. But that, that sounds like a very RPG thing to make it me. Sounds do. like a very Falcom thing to do. Um, but the the class is a fun bunch of anime archetypes, and uh, there's a little bit of a Valkyria Chronicles or Valkyria Chronicles flavor to the way that the politics and everything unfold. Yeah,
1: I did get a very much a, a Valkyria Chronicles* vibe from not just the military academy, but a, okay, we're at a military academy and there's a war going on, and we're, we're all very prestigious and stuff. Yeah, it has a great battle system too. Yeah, I really do like the battle system quite a bit. I'm, uh, I really like the fact how you can sneak up behind an enemy, and actually, the way that you It's not just a matter of oh, you sneak up on an enemy or you don't. The way you sneak up on an enemy determines what kind of an advantage you will get, and uh, you can get like if you have like a really good score you can score up to like triple benefits like you know just crazy amounts of buffs and debuffs and you you hit first and it's just really a really interesting rpg so far
0: all right well i'm not quite ready to plant my flag and declare a uh, legends of heroes trails of cold steel report yet but i do think that we should check in periodically to see how you're doing Oh yeah, definitely. And uh, just because I kind of been in the mood uh,
1: because of uh, this game, I've gone back on the Switch to play a little bit of uh, Ease Eight again. Oh, really?
0: How are you enjoying
1: that one? It, like I said, it's hilarious to look at the the parallels between them. Even though, of course, Ease is a very different game. Uh, that's a much more action RPG, whereas uh, Trails is a more menu based RPG. So it is kind of interesting to see the Falcom uh, archetype except with two different systems. That is interesting.
0: Well, everybody knows that when it comes uh, I mean, every studio has its own house style, right? I mean, you can generally tell a Square Enix game from a Falcon game, from an Atlas game, for example.
1: (laughs) Yeah, except, I don't know, it seems a little stronger with with Falcon. And again, I'm not criticizing. It's just, I think it's actually a a really kind of endearing trait. And there's smaller studio that kind of does one thing and does it really well, so...
0: I don't hold it against him. Yeah, I interviewed their president, I think, two years ago now. It was back in 2017. And it was enjoyable to hear his story of how he was a game developer who just really, really enjoyed uh, Falcom's games. And now he gets to run the whole company. <laughs> Can you imagine
1: like being a fan? Like, wow, I really like your games. Oh, you're in charge now. Why? Bye. Yeah, We're taking no, off. exactly.
0: <laughs> All right. So we are going to move on to our new segment. Which is the RPG console quest, in which we Ooh. go through every single console and talk about its RPG legacy and pick the best RPG. So let's get going. So, my original impetus for creating this was that I wanted this to be the topic of episode 200 of Acts of the Blood God, Nadia, if you'll recall correctly. Right. And my idea was, okay, we'll pick the best RPG on every console. Sounds great, right? And then I took a step back Uh and I was like, man, that's a really big discussion. That's way too big for a single podcast. Yeah, and we're already pretty bad at like
1: overestimating or underestimating how long certain topics will take. Yeah, and I was
0: like, I don't want to make this a five-hour podcast, but I didn't want to give it short (laughs) shrift. So I thought, well, what if we turn this into a segment? And here we Mm. are—the RPG console quest, which is our quest to go through every single console from the Atari twenty-six hundred to the frickin' NES to the uh, to the Sega Genesis to the Sega Saturn. Uh, all the way up to the PS4 and the Nintendo Switch and the Vita. Don't forget the Vita. No, can't forget the Vita. Vita, Vita means life. <laughs> and this is a long-term project and uh, this, uh, this should mm-hmm. carry us for at least a little while longer and give us some um, give us enough content that maybe we can get up to episode 300 someday. <laughs> someday. Someday. We're on episode 204 and I'm already so tired Nadia. So so very tired. <laughs> Well, we keep on plugging on. Keep on plugging on. So, uh, so yeah. So, we are starting with the Intellivision and the ColecoVision and the uh, Atari 2600. And I'm curious, Nadia, what are your memories of these early, early consoles? So, uh, we're about the same age. We are. Which is to say that we were a little young t- for the the first generation or second generation, I guess, technically. Of consoles right because I mean my first memory was of playing an NES pretty much
1: oh I actually um, I do remember them quite well because uh, I didn't have an Intellivision but my neighbor did but I never got to play it because she had it in the closet somewhere and God only knows you know where the hookups were but I did have a ColecoVision and I did have uh, an Atari 2600 attachment for it and the ColecoVision
0: with Donkey Kong was my first game and my first console and that's right, because you could buy an attachment that would let you play Atari 2600 games on ColecoVision. You could. Uh, it was like a real wild west of uh, of rights back
1: then. It, it's, it's impossible to even think back now and think about how Activision was like, formed because this, this like, kind of spunky gang of third-party developers wanted
0: to stick it to Atari and say, Hey, you can't tell us not to develop for your system. We're going to do what we want. So, it shouldn't be that weird because we have, I don't know, Blu ray players in which you can stick any kind of Blu ray into them, right? I mean. Yeah, no, you're right. Uh, Just thinking in terms of what Nintendo did
1: later when it came around and like just the lockouts and the the licensing and everything like that from from that angle, when I looked back on it as a kid, I was like, wow, things were a little bit wilder back then, weren't they?
0: Well, I mean, it was the primordial ooze, the formative the formative moments of video game history where everybody was just kind of figuring things out like nobody even knew how to run the business back then they just knew that people wanted these kinds of games right well for the most part they were were also talking about a time
1: when they would give us like uh purina chase the chuck wagon and uh there was some sort of like (laughs) crest game like dental attack or plaque attack that was it and the kool-aid man game and (laughs) and you had to pay for it. oh yeah <laughs> it's like yo noid at some point some like someone realized hey we can pay people to play our advertisements
0: <laughs> god like fifty dollars 50- fifty fifty dollars to buy their stupid pizza game advert uh, stupid game starring a pizza game mascot the
1: uh, he, here's the thing about like growing up in canada i didn't know what the hell the noid was like for some
0: reason, I barely did either because he was from the '80s, I think.
1: Yeah, and he just like was not much of a like. First of all, Domino's didn't really have much of a presence here for a long time, and then I was like, "What the hell's annoyed?" Like my husband still wears a shirt that says "Avoid the annoyed and everyone's like, "What the hell's annoyed?" When they see him in it. Or <laughs> when Seven Up turned its damn spot into a mascot. <laughs> cool spot. Yeah, they made a video game about it. I think they made a video game out of him and probably Fido Dido. But I did
0: actually have an Atari fifty two hundred. Why would? How the hell did you end up with a fifty two hundred? So my dad actually did play video games. Uh, He uh, was always kind of a tech nerd, and he got into IT at a very early age. And so I always had computers and things Mm -hmm. around the house. And my dad enjoyed going to arcades in the 70s and early 80s. And he bought an Atari 5200, which came around the time of the... Great video game collapse. And so we had an Atari 5200 just kind of floating around the house, gathering dust. Though I did play a lot of Star Raiders on it.
1: Yeah, that's a good choice. Like, if
0: you're going to play anything on the 5200, I suppose. Yes, exactly. So, of course, I mean, while I did play games on the Atari 5200, and I think my friend had an Intellivision. Yeah, uh, could be wrong. It's one of those, The Intellivision is one of those systems where you always knew someone
1: with it, but, like, (laughs) you never had one yourself.
0: yeah. I didn't know the difference between them. I only knew NES at the time, but I had an Atari fifty two hundred. Uh-huh. But of course, ultimately, I was more of an NES kid, as were you know pretty much everybody our age.
1: Yeah, I mean, me too. Like, even though I had a Click Vision, which was actually a good system, and I had an, an Atari 60, uh, 2600, which isn't it was a thing. Um, it was like just it, it wasn't until the NES I realized, wow, this is what video games can. This is what video games can be. I really wasn't that into the like sort of arcade,
0: uh, cheap-looking arcade clones that the 2600 was capable of. I can appreciate now. So I did not appreciate this back then. Mm -hmm. Uh, I remember everybody was like, wow. When I first saw an NES, I couldn't believe how good the graphics were on that thing. And at the time, I was like, what are you even talking about? The NES looks so dated, because I was thinking (laughs) in terms of arcades, right? (laughs) Right. Like, even in the late 80s, I'd go into arcades, and I could see the difference in graphics and how much better than they were than the NES at that time. But now when I look at how much better NES games look than say an Atari 2600 or ColecoVision game, we've come a long way even then.
1: Yeah. Like I did not hang out in arcades at all when I was a kid and like, You know, if I was out shopping, I'd want to look at, like, the arcade games. It's like my mom would be like, no, let's go. We're going home. Like, I never really got a chance to to really get into them.
0: Yeah, I just remember that. So I was watching a lot of videos today for old Atari 2600 games. Uh And I was thinking about them in comparison to the original Super Mario Brothers. And even Super Mario Brothers, which today, by today's standards, is so primitive. Like, that game Uh looks amazing compared to what you could have gotten on the Atari 2600. Oh yeah. I I mean, the best-looking and probably the best Atari 2600
1: game period I could recommend is Solaris, which came out mm. like quite late in the Atari 2600's life. And even that is looks like nothing compared to Super Mario Brothers.
0: Okay, so let's talk about the earliest days of consoles. So, you might be surprised to hear this, Nadia, there weren't too many RPGs because most of the focus was on shoot'em up sports games other very simple concepts yeah. I mean the very idea of RPG was kind of invented in 1974 was Dungeons and Dragons and yeah like it had its roots in wargaming and that kind of thing mm-hmm. uh, but the notion of using stat calculation to decide your actions was an extremely new notion by by the standards of the late 70s unless yeah. you were heavily into wargaming. So, I mean, to put that onto extremely primitive consoles, which weren't even really capable of stack calculation, maybe a bridge too far. (laughs) It didn't happen very often at all. No, exactly. And, I mean, if you want to, like, talk about how limited systems were back then, just consider that we didn't get our first football game that supported 11 players on the field until Madden in 1989. And even then, that was considered... A big leap. Like Madden was like, I won't make a video game. I won't make a football simulator unless it has all eleven people on the field. And EA was like, Well, we'll give it our best shot. And then they put them on the field and the game ran like crap. <laughs> In nineteen eighty nine. Was this for the would they try this on the Genesis? Uh no, this was on the original PC. Oh wow. Yeah, yeah. So it didn't come out on console until like 1992. So so trying to imagine, so now imagine go back a, a solid decade or so and imagine trying to comp, uh, calculate complex statistics and that kind of thing on a very simple console like the Atari 2600, which is really kind of only good for something like Pong or yeah. you know, Pitfall, River Raid, that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, um, it was actually uh, like... You're usually talking about single-screen games, maybe some simple scrolling like you have with Pitfall. Uh, River Raid's a little bit interesting because that actually uses a an algorithm that has randomly generated levels, and that was actually quite an accomplishment for the Atari 2600 back in the day.
0: Yes, one of the an earliest pioneers for women in the video games industry. Yes, indeed, she was on the uh, I think the video game awards ceremony at one point.
1: The video game. Yes, shot. I think
0: she got a lifetime achievement award. She did. Yes, and I was really happy to see her get that. It's pretty rad. Um, so you might be surprised, Nadia, to learn mm-hmm. that there's heavy crossover between D&D players, token fans, and gamers.
1: Yeah, that is like the least surprising thing anyone has said to me this <laughs> year so
0: far. So the kind of people who are given to reading Lord of the Rings and playing Dungeons and Dragons are also the kind of people who were given to getting into game development. And perhaps you wouldn't be surprised to learn that people were very keen to translate the experience that they were having in Dungeons and Dragons mm-hmm. and the stories that they were creating and telling in those early games onto uh, into the video game space. So we've been talking we've talked about this on past episodes, especially with roguelites. You saw early RPGs starting to pop up. On universal university mainframes, games mm-hmm. like uh, based on Colossal Cave Adventure were being adapted onto these different platforms. Games like Wizardry, Ultima, etc., were appearing right. on the PC because the PC at, at the very dawn, the very earliest days of the PC, was much more powerful than when you had with a, a home console that you could plug into your TV, and yeah, also yeah. much more open ended. So.
1: Yeah, it was a lot more, uh, of course you could uh, upgrade it, you could, uh, it just had more power to begin with, Uh, of course it was capable of much more in terms of calculations.
0: And this was when games like Akalabeth and Wizardry and such were starting to appear on PC, when Richard Garriott and uh, some of the earliest RPG pioneers were doing their thing. Uh, we have a series called The History of RPGs over on the site that's, uh, that Jeremy Parrish has been writing on. Mm-hmm. And I suggest you go check it out because he has. Uh, there's a lot of interesting insights into the earliest, earliest, earliest days of RPGs. Uh, so Dragon Quest is considered the first true console game, but I mean, there were some forerunners. Uh, one of the earliest examples is Adventure, which is a game that you've actually played, Nadia. <laughs> I have indeed played Adventure. Uh, it is
1: uh, more of an action RPG. A lot of people consider it the precursor to The Legend of Zelda uh, because you're a little square and you pick up a sword and you kind of, <laughs> I guess, carry the the, so- the sword out in front of you like a poker and whatever runs into your sword dies. And that includes, uh, I think there are <laughs> four dragons in the game. And uh, they're actually, each one is programmed with its own sort of uh, intelligence and uh, behavior. Like, I know there's one dragon that's, you know, the red one is bold and will come right at you. The yellow one is a little bit shy and will hang back. Uh, so your the goal of the game, I think, is to, um, basically, as you would assume for a, a game from that era, is very simple, like... Uh, Find the treasure, find the keys to the to the uh, to the castle. It's very easy to get lost. Uh, everything kind of looks the same, although there are differently colored areas, so at least you can kind of keep track of where you're going. Uh, you can move bridges around, like literally just pick them up and move them around. And I'm still wondering how that's possible, but it's <laughs> uh, it's very important as the kind of the precursor for action adventure RPGs, and also uh, one of the first games to have an Easter egg because uh, Atari didn't let their programmers put their names in their games. So this, I can't remember the name of the programmer that goes to show how much game history I know. Uh, he just kind of hid the, his name inside the game and you can find it there.
0: Yeah, because they, yeah, exactly. Cause he wouldn't let you put the credits in. So that was the only way they could get credits because games are great. <laughs> you got to act like it's some sort of like underground, like secret. This is my
1: name. Don't tell anyone.
0: Uh, the, a person made this, a person was behind this thing that you are playing right now. I was a man. I was a person. Uh, but I can't remember if this was the case with Adventure. My recollection, though, is that one of the creators of Rogue played Adventure and felt like they had solved it. And so ultimately decided that they wanted to make a game that was completely randomized and oh. went and made Rogue. Now, oh. I th- I think that was the case with Adventure. It might have been a different game, but that was the one that springs immediately to mind. Though it seems that there are some randomized elements in Adventure. Uh, it's very possible. Um, I'm not 100% they, sure. I think the items are put in different areas.
1: Oh, okay. That makes a lot of sense. There is, like I said, some Atari games have like minor randomization elements. But uh, yeah, given how earlier Adventure was and how influential it would have been to like people who wanted good accessible rpgs on consoles back then i could see like you know with lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time
0: no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a
1: guest registry in that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The, the creator of like Rogue going to it and saying, hey, I like this idea. I bet it can make it even better.
0: <laughs> so there was actually a quote-unquote true RPG for the Atari 2600, believe it or not. And it's a game I've never heard before, but it's called Dragon Stomper. And it was released <laughs> in 1982. It was written by Steven Landrum. and it has stats, Nadia. It's not just an action game that's kind of set in a dungeon area. You have a strength uh, you have strength yeah. which represents hit points and uh-huh. dexterity for your armor class. There's no experience points or character levels, but there are theoretically stats.
1: Yeah, I had to look up this game because I had no idea it existed. Uh, like, my knowledge of, like, RPGs on Atari was just like, oh, okay, there was adventure. But no, there's actually quite a bit more than that. And, um, yeah, Quite Dragon a bit Stomper,
0: more, equaling one, one other game. <laughs> um,
1: but Dragon Stomper was worth a lot because, and this is what interested me, it was for a peripheral that was a tape player that you could plug into your Atari 2600. And it wasn't like, oh, okay, here's the, you know, here's the thing that you plug into the Atari 2600 and then you plug your your tape into it. No, what you would do was you take a little thing that plugs into the Atari cartridge slot and then you hook up your own Walkman to this, this, this module through the headphone jack and you play these specialized car, uh, um, cassette games through them. And one of those games, there's only like 15 of them, but one of them was Dragon Stomper. And as you said, it was actually a really big game for the Atari because um, I think Atari games generally you're looking at 128 bytes of memory, and a cassette game for this peripheral could be like up to like 6K, Ooh. and that that made like a big difference. And if you look at Dragon Stomp, you will see actually that. The it moves quite fluidly for an Atari game. It has those stats we talked about. It has uh, pretty good uh, monster sprites. Like, the dragon looks pretty good for an Atari game. You have, like, you know, different kinds of monsters. You have guards, you have spiders, you have uh, bugs. Um, yeah, it wasn't exactly a fancy-looking game. Your your character was still a dash, like, literally a dash. Uh, but for what it was, just knowing that there was a this whole peripheral that i missed out on for the atari 2600 i was just like wow because i associate cassettes with computers not the atari 2600
0: yeah you could call it the earliest 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 iteration of say dragon warrior where it's kind of a top-down game you're wandering across an enchanted countryside there are random encounters it's turn-based you get golden items that kind of thing uh yeah, it mostly looks like a series of blobs on a screen. It does a bit, yeah. And when you're attacked, it says, oh, no, a spider. <laughs> oh, no, a maniac, <laughs> <laughs> exclamation, exclamation, exclamation. Oh, yes. But there's a village, and there are shops, like the trade yeah. shop, the magic shop, the hospital. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can hire warriors to help you fight a dragon. Yeah. Uh, and then there's the dragon's
1: cave. <laughs> yeah, it has, like, traps and, like, you know, arrows, like arrow traps and pits and stuff.
0: And but and relatively speaking, the dragon is really big. I mean, I mean, granted, you're just a dash, but it's a big dragon. <laughs> it's a big dragon, and it looks like a dragon. Uh,
1: Adventures dragons are kind of infamous for being looking like ducks. You know what plays once you win? Oh, I think I heard that. It, was that Britannia? I heard no, rule
0: Brita- Britannia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they kind of use some, uh, like, public domain there. Well, it sounds like a very complicated game for its time. Uh, for a game that came out in 1982 on Atari 26- 2600. It really does. Uh, yeah. It really it strikes me as a game that's a lot more suited for, the like, what you'd see on the PC. I remember when I was in high school and I started to learn very basic programming. Like, literally basic. And w- my first thought was, I want to make a game. And uh-huh. I want to make a really complicated text adventure. <laughs>
1: of course you do, yeah. Where
0: your, where your decisions matter. I think everybody just wants to push the limits of whatever medium they happen to have access to. Uh-huh. And we're now finally getting to a point where the medium is so big that it's actually kind of hard to push against the boundaries of it. But mm-hmm. when everything was so limited in 1982, it's not surprising to me that there was some enterprising programmer out there who was like, No, I'm going to try and translate a very full Dungeons & Dragons experience onto an extremely simple console like the Atari 2600, a system that has virtually no memory whatsoever.
1: Yeah, and uh, he had, or whoever did it, had to use that peripheral for it, but still shows the ambition
0: was certainly there. So getting back really quickly to uh, to the cassette thing, I got to say that having a Walkman plug into this thing is the most 80s thing I've ever heard. And it's called the Star Pass Supercharger. I like completely love that.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, Just, uh, gosh, just like I actually had a Walkman in the 80s. And that was a really big deal purchase back then. But so I just love seeing it like come into play in in this way. Like just that weird melding of, of music and data.
0: I, I rem- it reminds me of the Nintendo disk drive back when Nintendo yes. was still extremely self conscious about the fact that they were creating a gasp, oh no, console. And so <laughs> they were like, no, no, actually, it's a PC that you plug into your TV. See, there's yeah, a keyboard, the keyboard and keyboard. a disk drive and a key and something to play music on. No, it's and and you, can, you, you, need learn you can plug it into a modem and have download your stocks onto it. It's not a video game console. Psh.
1: Well, it's just like, it's funny because they had the, that uh, hesitation in the, in the, in the U.S. market, of course, but they, ha- I guess they also had it in the Japanese market because yes, the, the Famicom seemed be family computer. It was much more computer-like than it was like just a simple child's toy because you could learn basic on it. You could check uh, not just your stocks, but horse race uh, scores, whatever, you, whatever they call horse race scores, I don't know.
0: There was also a game for the Atari 2600 called Crypt of Chaos. And this game is extremely obscure, but it is a first-person game that actually looks a fair amount like wizardry. And I'm not entirely sure what it's all about. Uh, I was able to find its instruction manuals and everything, but it sounds a little like a a roguelike. Your objective, uh, according to the instruction manual, Your objective is to descend as far into the crypts as possible, stealing every treasure and killing every monster you can get your hands on. You must try to keep your kit count high enough to escape the crypts alive. And there are a series of complicated mazes. In order not to be discouraged, please read the instruction manual carefully and draw maps of the crypts as you reach (laughs) and travel them. Yeah, that sounds like the 80s. All right. I like how they decide your class for you. You're a thief. Uh, What if I want to be a warrior? Thief. You're a tomb raider. You're a Tomb Raider. More of a Tomb Raider than a Lara Croft, apparently. Oh, sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Crypt Raider. (laughs) Crypt Raider. The back of the box is so wonderfully early 80s Dungeons & Dragons. For centuries, the legend of the Crypts of Chaos has been cloaked in mystery. It is said that the Crypts are guarded by gruesome and deadly creatures. Although many have entered the creepy Crypts in search of ancient treasure, none have ever returned. And then there's a a, a a screenshot that actually looks really good for an Atari 2600 uh-huh. game of a maze and what looks like a little skull.
1: Oh, beware the skull. Uh, that That is actually quite uh, bold because with Atari 2600 games, if you did get screenshots, they were kind of embellished. Mm-hmm. You know, a little bit touched up just a little bit to make them look a little more impressive than they actually were.
0: It's a, 20, uh, it's a 20th Century Fox game, by the way. Oh, is it really? Yep. And the games that, the <laughs> games that you fight, are the enemies that you fight are Troll, Frog, Snake, Skull, Blob, Eye, Wizard, and Dragon. And they all look yeah, they... vaguely like what they're supposed to.
1: <laughs> vaguely. That's all I can ask for on the Atari 2600. I like the names.
0: It's... Eye. Blob. <laughs> skull. Some of the monsters are harder to slay than others and require several attacks from your weapons, and the color indicates its strength. So it begins with green, and then continues with violet, bronze, light blue, red, dark blue, lavender, and gold, which I think they're just making stuff up.
1: Yeah, that's okay. I I am 100% like, okay, I understand how palette palette swaps work, but we're talking about like, you know, green dragon, and then red dragon, not like... all the
0: colors of the rainbow so each floor of the crypts of chaos is guarded by a monster trolls guard the top floor trolls and frogs guard the second floor trolls frogs and snakes guard the third floor man this is like a really miserable crypt just (laughs) stepping through all of these (laughs) damn trolls and frogs and snakes
1: it it sounds like one of those songs you sing as a kid like the hole in the ground like it kind of builds up and up and up and up like here's the orcs here's the orcs and the snakes here's the orcs and the snakes and the trolls and it just goes on and
0: on and on Uh, so apparently there's difficulty levels so you can go all the way up to expert gameplay where you begin on floor 13 with 90 hits 31 wand charges and seven ring charges and remember to take all treasure from all eight layers in each level to get bonus charges for your ring and wand wow they actually did put a lot of thought into this game didn't they yeah i have never heard of this game and i'm sure this is literally the first time in god knows how many years that anybody's actually talked about this thing yeah, because I, it just, like, don't get me wrong,
1: I wasn't exactly all up on the uh, 2600 RPG scene or anything like that, <laughs> but uh, I've never heard of this, but it sounds like, it sounds pretty good. and You know what, it might be one of those, uh, like, again, like Solaris, one of those really late releases that are super ambitious and actually pretty good for the Atari 2600, and then, you know, it kind of just got
0: eaten alive by the NES anyway. No. Nah. So competing no. consoles, there's ColecoVision and the Intellivision. So on the Intellivision, we had actual Dungeons and Dragons games, which I don't think were actually uh, authorized by D&D. I think this was a period where people were just <laughs> oh, taking no. names because there was at least one D&D game that was never released because D&D actually pushed back against it. Oh, oh, this, oh, this must have been when they were under TSR, too. Yeah, yeah this was back oh, when it was still really TSR.
1: Old. And not Watsy. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and then someone someone re- remembered what copyright is, and that was the end of that. So the first one was Dungeons and Dragons. It was just I think it was just called Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and this one was basically a top-down game. You start with a map of a, mm-hmm. a vaguely fantasy-looking map, and then you are continuing through each uh, particular area. You're trying to get to an end goal, and you are when you go into a dungeon. You are basically a little blob with a club, <laughs> walking through a, 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 an ill-defined hallway, and then sometimes a monster will pop up and start chasing you. Did not, it did not look very fun. I'm not gonna lie, but a lot of no, I, I, yeah, I checked it out myself too, and it was like, yeah, this is certainly something I probably wouldn't have. But played. I guess it's just because it has the name Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. It seems to have had at least some of something of a legacy.
1: That makes sense. I could see it being one of those games where people think they're actually paying for a Dungeons and Dragons game and not this was uh,
0: This was the very much the heyday of advanced Dungeons and Dragons. I might add because D came out in 1974, a D and believe came out in 1979 or thereabouts. And a D and D was the one that was really famous and pretty much everybody was playing. And so, when you see something like um, stranger things where they're all playing d that's the that's the version they're playing it's just basically yeah uh, and then right. second edition came out in 1989 i want to say so uh, so the game that maybe is a little more recognizable as a traditional rpg and again has a very wizardry kind of look is a game called treasure of tarman and i got to say if nothing else it has a, a, some great box art
1: Oh, I'm I'm blanking what the box art looks like. I don't think I got to look that up.
0: It looks like your classical AD&D book cover. Ah. So you have a Grim Reaper at the top. You have a guy fighting a giant scorpion uh, to the right. (laughs) Nice. You have a castle with somebody kind of starting to enter it on the left. In the bottom left, you have a troll with an axe, and behind him is a whole lot of treasure. And there are some dragons flying behind the Grim Reaper, and it all has this wonderfully styled late 70s, early 80s look to it. It really was a good time
1: for, if nothing else, it was a great time for box art, for game box art.
0: Yeah, fantasy art was so
1: good back then, wasn't it? Really it really was. Like, it, it was really the heyday for for fantasy art. And I'm not being like, get off my lawn or anything like that. I'm just saying facts.
0: <laughs> it's like a late 80s manga, right? Yeah. Uh, I just, I live for that style. Because I think I've mentioned, uh, I'm contractually obligated to mention every episode that I'm playing Super Robot Wars. One of the, one of the series in that game is a game, a series called Aura Battler Dunbine. And if you want to talk about 80s fantasy mixed with 80s manga, there you go. Amazing. <laughs> I love that stuff. It's basically it basically imagines what if fantasy, like DD fantasy, had mechs go. That's pretty cool,
1: actually. It's great. That's actually why I loved uh the Capcom uh, Dungeon Dragons arcade games, because you had that like uh, you know, that those like that Dungeon Dragons archetypes, but with like total, total manga, 90s anime dark stalkers
0: sort of aesthetic. Like, Oh, yeah. Here's race, like, super anime. It was amazing. Yes, totally. But Treasures of Tarman, also known as Minotaur, and Advanced Dungeons & Dragons cartridge, it was 1982. 1982 was seemingly a good year for these games, yeah. uh, probably because it coincided roughly with when AD&D was all of the hotness, and so big uh-huh. that uh, sh- town sheriffs were literally showing up and being like, are you doing occult things? <laughs> I'm so glad I lived in a big city. Didn't really have that nonsense. Uh, but yeah, Treasure of Tarman was one of the very first RPGs that would have been recognizable by modern games for a console because as and we already mentioned, it's the same year as Dragon Stomper. It had a full mm-hmm. first-person 3D gameplay with randomized dungeons, tons of weapons, items, mm-hmm. and monsters. and It was a total technical marvel. And if you look at the screenshots, it looks incredible. The
1: television, okay, yeah, okay, now, I, now I'm picturing it.
0: Yeah, it's noticeably better looking than anything on the Atari 2600. Like On, yeah, on the 2600, had a, you had the little dash and some other thing. Yeah. This one has <laughs> 3D-looking mazes with like a skeleton that looks like a skeleton. It's really cool, actually. Yes, yes yeah,
1: and actually, if I'm not mistaken, doesn't the hero actually look kind of like someone clutching a sword?
0: Yes. And not like a dash? Not just a dash, no. But you're ultimately fighting, you guessed it, a minotaur, because minotaurs live in, you guessed it, labyrinths. They they tend to hang out there. What what is it with old-style RPGs, like the very first RPGs? What is it with them in labyrinths and mazes? I guess they were so easy to program, Um,
1: and it's really a good way to get people to, uh, obviously, if you can't have a lot of content in your games because you have, like, you know, 120 to work with just have them run a maze like a rat that'll take up their time
0: i suppose because i think the whole point initially was okay you are a series of adventurers and you are going to fight monsters and where do monsters live they live in caves and what are they guarding Mm -hmm. treasure and so if you're playing a video game you don't want to just walk into a cave fight one monster and take a treasure so it only makes sense that the cave be Uh, fairly complex and full of lots of different enemies that you can fight on the way to the big boss monster. And so that's how you end up with a fairly straightforward dungeon. And Yeah, pretty much. And it's a very simple and easy gameplay concept to implement to be like, okay, well, the further down you go, the monsters get more and more dangerous, et cetera. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And even uh, the more advanced uh, RPGs like we saw with Dragon Quest uh, a little few years later... We, we were still wandering around in a lot of mazes in the dark, even though you had the overworld to explore.
0: Yeah, go check out our RPG podcast. It's like episode 100-something about uh, dungeons and where we talk about dungeons and the history of dungeons. Uh, it's fairly enjoyable. But I, I think that so much of it goes back to the Mines of Moria, which is the prototypical dungeon, mm-hmm. as it were, being appearing in Lords, Lord of the Rings
1: and that uh, has the quote unquote boss that has the balrog, doesn't it?
0: Yes, no, exactly. And so surprise surprise, uh the balrog got just loaded uh lifted whole cloth <laughs> and turned into <laughs> one of the most famous uh, uh roguelikes. So, yeah, uh Treasure of Tarman was I, I'd say Treasure of Tarman might have been the best RPG you were going to probably get in that era. It was A big, complex, kind of gorgeously looking game with randomly generated levels, randomly generated loot, and lots of different types of enemies. And if you weren't just down with playing Pong all day long, uh, (laughs) or playing, you know, Pitfall, (laughs) well, this was kind of the game to play, right? Yeah. uh, Even as a kid, I kind of appreciated
1: more complicated games on my simpler systems. And, you know, even though I didn't have an Atari, uh, sorry, I didn't have an Intellivision uh, that does kind of strike me as the kind of game where I would be totally lost. I'd get totally destroyed every time I took a step, but I'd keep on trying because I just liked mazes and I liked monsters and stuff like that when I was a kid.
0: Well, it only made sense that uh, arcade games were so big on these games uh, on these home consoles back then. Cause we were fully in the arcade boom in the late seventies, mm-hmm. early eighties. And the arcades wouldn't start to die for another few years after that. So And everybody thought of video games in terms of high scores and that kind of thing. So they did, yeah. But it also made total sense that there would be people who would be like, no, I'm going to try and turn my my favorite tabletop RPG experience into a video game. So, uh, and with ColecoVision, uh, you had a, there was supposed to be a game based on Tunnels and Trolls. And Tunnels and Trolls has an interesting history. Within the RPG space, because if I recall correctly, it was one of the very earliest versions of D&D. It was the second modern role-playing game ever published, and it was designed by Ken St. Andre and first published in 1975. Huh. I, see, I've—it's one of those names where I, I kind of think of it, but
1: then I think like, "Oh, was that some sort of Dungeons and Dragons ripoff?" But I'm guessing not.
0: So it continued to go on for quite a while, all the way into like the fifth edition and that kind of thing. So there was. So the reason I bring up uh, tunnels and trolls is that it was. So the reason I bring up tunnels and trolls was that it was actually in the process of being turned into an RPG for ColecoVision. But was never finished. All we ever uh-huh. had was a title screen. Right. So various homebrew group groups have been trying to finish it. <laughs> We're bored by. There's also a game called Gateway to opsha which was an early PC RPG. Um and on ColecoVision they had a spin-off called Temple of Opshi. And it was a lot more action-oriented than uh Temp uh than yeah. Temple. Yeah, okay. So this was like basically I don't know if it was meant to be a prequel
1: or a sequel, one or the other, but uh, it was uh, connected to Temple of Apshai, and uh, it was a lot more um, action-oriented. An interesting thing about that game that I discovered today is, yes, there was a version on the Commodore 64, it had 18 levels, and those were procedurally generated. But on the ColecoVision, you had 99 levels, and those weren't procedurally generated. So that's a, a nice little trade-off there. I find that
0: interesting. I just like the idea that one is the gateway, so you just walk in the door and go, hello, to be continued. <laughs> You're going to die. Next week, stepping into the temple. We got in the door. What will be waiting us for us elsewhere on the PC? Perhaps an actual RPG. I don't know. So yeah, that's a basic overview of the RPG space at that time. It was a lot of extremely simple dungeon crawlers that kind of were modeled after mm-hmm. D, but out of this very simple kind of foundation we started to see the outlines of rpgs that we know today um in a game like uh dragon stomper we could kind of see the outlines of dragon uh, of dragon quest in a game like Crypts of uh-huh. Chaos or Treasure of Tarman. We could totally see the outlines of wizardry. And that would uh, eventually Absolutely. kind of form up uh, and become the RPGs that we would eventually kind of come to love and everything. So, But it's impressive that yeah. they got RPGs at all onto these consoles, frankly.
1: Yeah. Um, as you say, it kind of speaks to the determination of some of these people who are like, hey, let's uh, take this machine that was not at all meant to make an RPG and make an RPG out of it. Yep. So
0: normally at this time, we would pick one of the best RPGs or the best RPG on those particular consoles. I don't know that we can really because, I mean, none of them is what we would call best. I mean, they're old. Yeah. They were pioneering. They're, they're kind of old.
1: That's a, that's a that's a very kind way to say it. They are, they are pioneering and some are very impressive for their time. Uh but they
0: none of them are gonna make a top twenty-five list of our RPGs anytime. The sacred soon. twenty-five RPG list. The sacred twenty five. They're not invited. Yeah. No, but they are interesting curiosities at the very least, and maybe useful for kind of understanding where we came from in terms of role playing mm-hmm. and kind of putting that whole era into context. Um, in the meantime, though, there are people who are continuing to make RPGs for uh, old consoles. In particular, Team Pixel Boy has a whole bunch of party-based RPGs for ColecoVision, including Black Onyx, which is an actual party-based dungeon crawler, as well as Stone of Wisdom, yeah. which is a top-down Zelda-like dungeon crawler. I think you said you actually knew Team Pixel Boy. I I,
1: I believe I am ninety-nine percent sure I knew the titular Pixel Boy. The titular um, we're talking Pixel about Boy. like. Tipping the pixel boy, It's talking about. I used to be part of a Mega Man chat group in 1995 nerd. on IRC. I was a total nerd, and I I was friends with him. I talked to him all the time, and uh, I haven't talked to him many years. So if if you're listening, pixel boy, hi. I don't know if you remember Red Draco, but hope you're doing well. Uh, clearly you are. <laughs> you're, you're
0: heading your own uh, homebrew, and they're doing uh, a whole bunch of really cool stuff for the CLECOVISION. I think it's really neat that there are people who love these particular consoles so much that they want to make these kinds of games. And I got to say that games like Black Onyx look really remarkably good, actually.
1: It's actually, it's funny, this whole week I'm discovering the, the, the length that people are going to for, to make old software and old games for, uh, sorry, to make software and games for really old platforms. Like, uh, not that long ago, I reported about that port for Super Mario Brothers on the Commodore 64. Which doesn't sound like much, but for what the Commodore sixty four is capable of, is actually a really, really impressive port and a really incredible feat of engineering what he did there. And of course, Nintendo just you know kind of said, forget that. But uh, yeah, people are they still put a lot of effort and love into the these games for these old systems, and I appreciate that.
0: Yeah, I think that it gets back to what I was talking about earlier where you can still push the boundaries of our of video games today, but it costs an outrageous amount of money. And so really you get does. into much more high concept kind of stuff. But yes. if you're a programmer and you want a serious challenge, then what better than to try and translate a fairly modern experience onto one of these ancient systems like the Commodore 64? Oh, absolutely. Uh,
1: those, are some, those are some really good limitations to work by. It's kind of like uh, when I go back and write something for a magazine format, and you have to say, "Okay, here is your. You have five hundred words to tell me why I should buy this game." That's a <laughs> that's a big challenge for someone like myself who's been writing so long w- in the web format, but I really kind of enjoy that challenge. I like being told, "Okay, you have to cut yourself
0: down, and you still have to be you still have to deliver something good." So that was part one of our RPG console quest, in which we try and go through the legacies of every single console to date. And no, we're not doing the Magnavox Odyssey for the love of God, (laughs) or the Vectrex. Sorry, (laughs) I don't think there are any RPGs on those. (laughs) Uh, I'm not sure. I don't think so. Let's talk about the RPG qualities of the Pong machines that got sold in the '70s. But yeah, those were like there were a lot of those. Sure were. But, yeah, no, so that was the very earliest days of RPGs on consoles. Next week, we're going to get into the Nintendo Entertainment System, which maybe has a little stronger of an RPG (laughs) legacy. Just a little bit, yeah. Just a tiny bit. And we'll we'll see which ones we continue to go through over time. Uh, I don't know that we're going to devote an entire episode, say, to the Atari Jaguar or some of these older other systems, that have relatively limited libraries to begin with let alone having actual rpgs but i think the the consoles we talked about today probably had a better rpg history than the jaguar i i'm not actually sure well we might be able to combine say the 32x and the lynx and the jaguar because they were all kind of at the same time right a sad episode yeah the saddest of sad episodes but Uh, So, yeah, we got to do a little more research on that front. But in the meantime, I hope you liked the first segment. If you have any comments or you want to highlight any other RPGs we might have missed from this particularly interesting era, do me a favor and drop me a line at cat.bailey at usgamer.net or send me a DM. No, we're not going to do PC right out of the gate because Mm. PC is very much its own animal. Uh, The lines are a little blurrier, and I sort of feel like you can't do one episode on PC. Right, you really can't. It's a big, big animal. I sort of feel like if you're going to do PC, you got to go by decade, right? So yeah. you start at the '70s and then you continue like '80s, '90s, 2000s. Like those are each defined periods of PC mm-hmm. development. And frankly, I think that's an entirely different series.
1: I think so. Yeah, that would be
0: a, that would be a very, very involved series. Frankly. But I think the history of console RPGs is very interesting on its own. So, we're going to I think so. Yeah, yeah it's going to be a lot of fun. So, all right. So, let's continue on to the mailbag. Okay, Nadia. Last week we talked about our favorite animal buddies in RPGs we talked about everybody from Boo the Space Hamster to Koromaru and Persona 3 to, of course, Dogmeat. Mm-hmm. And if you go onto the site right now, you can find Nadia's full write-up of that list on the site. But in the meantime, of course, everybody has their own opinions on this particular subject. And here are a few of them. Nimzi says, I'm going to throw in a vote for Final Fantasy Tactics' monster companions. Sure, they're mostly useless, but who didn't ha- save Boko the Chocobo when they had the chance? Yeah, that's fair. Uh, So I guess Boko showed up in Tactics as well as Final Fantasy V. Yes, chocobos totally did show up in Final Fantasy Tactics in general. And if you weren't careful and you were totally overleveled, they could kill the hell out of you. Really? Like if you're overleveled or underleveled? Yeah, no, overleveled, because the random monsters would match your level, if I would recall correctly. And you could find yourself in a situation where chocobos would just come in and annihilate you. Wow, imagine dying to a chocobo. That would suck. A whole pack of chocobos that just want to peck your eyes out. Okay,
1: well, you see, if I, I guess if I came in, in like face to face with a cassowary, like, yeah, I could see dying to one of those. So I guess dying to a chocobo is, is possible. Dying to a cassowary. Speaking of chocobos, Que or Wark? Yes, we had this discussion on Twitter, didn't we? I'm going with Wark. Yes. Why? Because it was, it was, it predates Que. I just. Kwe! And nothing, you know the sound that a, a chocobo makes when it's pissed off, right? Like in Final Fantasy mm-hmm. 7, like, to me, that's the quintessential uh, chocobo sound, the pissed off wark chocobo.
0: Somebody on Twitter, uh, Cena Breyer said, quack is the standard noise, wark is the equivalent of you stepping on a dog's tail and it going yipe.
1: <laughs> that actually, that's actually quite suitable because like I said, when they're, they seem to say wark when they're angry most of the time. But I like that actually, people have opinions on this, by the way. It is, it is an important topic. Although when you go to the chocobo farm for the first time in Final Fantasy 7 and you know you say you talk to chocobo and it says Wark, and if you answer Wark uh, in the correct form, it'll dance. They'll all dance for you, which is really cute.
0: <laughs> it's really cute. You get the you get the material for that. Caffeinated brushes says the absolute worst animal buddy was Choo Choo from Xenogears. You're telling me they didn't have enough resources to finish this promising game, but then they spent what little they didn't have on this horrible animal mascot? But At least Choo Choo gets what's coming to her late in the game. Just look it up on Tutu, at uh, YouTube. And I don't know if Catch counts, but I will never forgive him for ca- kidnapping Marlene, that bastard. Ketchy in Final Fantasy VII.
1: I every time I play Final Fantasy VII, I try to figure out what the hell Square Enix was trying to do with that character. Like he's a robot, but he's a stuffed animal. But he's, I guess he's supposed to be wacky and fun. But he's actually piloted by a spy. Like it's just kind of like, okay, is he is he a is he a monster? Is he a toy? Is he a what? Like he's a little too sophisticated for me. I don't trust him.
0: I think that with She they just needed some kind of weird mascot. Uh, to sell to Japanese audiences in particular. And so that's why you got um oh, Yeah, Red 13, if you want to, like, sell a mascot. Yeah, I guess. But as for Choo Choo, um, of course, Choo Choo gets crucified.
1: Yeah, okay. I haven't played Xeno, Xeno Gears, as you know. Were they playing that whole thing straight? Yes. Okay, so Choo Choo really did die for our
0: sins. Well, he, all of the robots get uh, crucified for some reason. And as okay. Choo Choo is technically a robot, because Choo Choo just gets really big. <laughs> what? Yeah, Choo Choo grows to an enormous size to fight alongside the robots in Gears, which is, by the way, a very serious game about very serious topics.
1: Uh, I
0: have heard all about this, about how like
1: Japanese audiences are much more serious and much more refined in terms of their philosophies than
0: Westerners, but please go ahead. But at a certain point, all the robots get crucified for some reason. I don't remember why, and <laughs> Choo Choo ends up getting ends up being one of them. Wow! Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, by the way, uh, some people were throwing out uh, various other creatures that have appeared in other RPGs. Uh, the Palicos from Monster Hunter is a good one.
1: Oh, that's a good one. That's a very good one, especially in World. My Palico was fantastic.
0: There was also Shiro from Suikoden Two and the dog from A Bard's Tale.
1: I did mention Shiro. She was great.
0: And a lot of people mentioned Null from the Lunar Games, which is this adorable little creature that kind of follows you around. Um, I don't know too much about this thing, but it does look pretty cute in the pictures I've seen. I think Null is the uh, Lunar is one of those series, I'd
1: really love to have Silver Star Story on some sort of uh, system that's uh, not just physical medium. But uh, Null, I think, is actually a dragon. Yes,
0: a small, small dragon. A cat. Small, yeah. adorable dragon. Looks like a kitty cat. <laughs> yeah, put it on Switch. Yeah, there you go. I'll play it. Just put it all on Switch. I don't care. It's what I want it. Put everything
1: on Switch. Declaration of Independence is on
0: Switch now. Ardea Abe says I'd like to make an honorable mention for Secret of Evermore Dog. He's the only other companion in your party, so Dog is with you the whole game. While the boy is constantly a fish out of water, the dog adapts. The dog is a hulking wolf in prehistoria, a sleek, well proportioned greyhound in Etiqua." a fancy pink poodle in Gothica, and a robot dog in Amitopia. The dog is a great companion and is thoroughly a doggo. The dog starts your adventure by chasing a cat and chewing on some suspicious cables. The dog sniffs out useful alchemy ingredients for you. There are even some solo sections where you get to play as a dog during their misadventures.
1: Secret of Evermore is one of those games I want to like a lot more than I do because it has a, really, has a lot of really interesting uh, ideas. And if you look back on them, you can kind of see where Western RPGs were getting their start on consoles. Uh, might be worth a topic on its own someday. But yeah, the dog was part of the, was your secondary party member and, and he was pretty cool. See,
0: we've got so much more to cover in the RPG space. But as usual, we're running low on this particular episode and we're going to have to cut it short. But we will be back next week as always. But for the in the meantime, Axel the Blugout is a US Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold make sure to follow me on Twitter at the underscore catpod. is at Nadia Oxford. If you enjoy the podcast, make sure to review us. And if you have something to share with us, like a comment or a note, uh, we may read it on the episode and talk about it and give you a little bit of a shout-out. But we will be back next week to continue our quest through console RPGs, or maybe not. Maybe something will come up, but it seems like we have a little bit of time before the next big RPG comes out so this is how to fill in mm-hmm. the space we have got like t- at least 20 parts to go i haven't counted the number of rp uh, number of consoles there are out there but there's actually a lot so i'm looking forward to it looking forward to the wonder swan episode nadia yeah that's going to be an interesting one i know a lot of
1: it ended up on the gba eventually but some of an it is excuse didn't. to talk about super robot wars and gundam
0: seed <laughs> but oh i was thinking like final fantasy uh, four but okay <laughs> <laughs> look forward to that in like i don't know october or something but in the meantime like i've been Cap bailey and for myself thanks for listening and until next time happy adventuring